This is The Guardian. Today, a journey into the epicentre of Morocco's earthquake. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I arrived in Marrakesh about 10 o'clock on Sunday morning and the airport's operating normally. There's tourists coming and leaving. Peter Beaumont is a Guardian journalist based in London. And soon after an earthquake hit Morocco late on Friday night, he was on the ground. While you're driving around Marrakesh, you can see some damage. There's an old hospital with some rather ornate walls that's got cracks in it. People left their homes and slept in the street. But I mean, Marrakesh at the moment looks pretty normal. I mean, people are going to restaurants, tourists are walking around. The hotel I'm staying at, there's tourists sitting around the swimming pool, which feels a little bizarre given what's going on in this country at the moment. The earthquake was the most powerful to hit Morocco in more than 60 years, and it's killed at least 2,800 people, and probably many more. And to see what it's really done to this country, you need to get out of the cities of concrete and stone buildings and start climbing towards villages of clay and sand, places so remote they might not appear on maps. It's only really when you start driving out on the roads towards the Atlas Mountains that you start beginning to see the damage. As you get close to the mountains and start going higher and higher up, that's when you start seeing the devastation. Peter has been spending the past few days in the villages that have borne the brunt of this earthquake. And today, he takes us with him. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, a day in the ruins of Morocco's earthquake. Peter, when did this earthquake hit and just how severe was it? The earthquake hit about 10 past 11 on Friday night. Essentially, it was either a time where people were sleeping or coming back from mosque or were eating meals in their homes. The number, it was 6.8. You see other bigger numbers, but it was quite shallow. And even if the force generated at the epicentre is not as great as some earthquakes we've seen in recent years, just the shallowness of it is what contributed to such a severe impact. Explain the significance of that to me. Why does it matter? Why does it make it more destructive if the earthquake is shallow? It's to do with the generation of force through the Earth's crust. This is energy that has less far to travel and dissipate as it's going to the surface. And so how widely felt was the impact across how much of Morocco are we seeing damage, destruction and death? Most of the damage is concentrated in the Atlas area. High mountains just jump out of the coastal plain beyond Marrakesh and are seamed with deep gorges and tree-lined wadis. As I said, there's damage in Marrakesh. 
there were reports of people feeling the quake and going to sleep out in the street and places as far away as us or we were on the coast. So the tremor was felt quite a long way, but the place where it's really hit is in these Berber mountain communities. Many of them live a very traditional lifestyle where there was a lot of fragile living conditions in terms of accommodation. How often is Morocco hit by earthquakes of this strength? When was the last time there was a major earthquake like this? The last major earthquake that caused a lot of death and destruction was the 1960 earthquake that hit Agadir, where I think 15,000 people were killed. The stricken town of Agadir, shattered by the most terrible earthquake ever known in Morocco. It's estimated that almost 80% of the buildings in Agadir were wrecked in these few moments of disaster. These kind of earthquakes are relatively rare in Morocco. It is a geologically active area. The reason that the Atlas Mountains exist is because they're being pushed up by geological activity, but it's more slow-moving than some other areas where you have these kind of things. And tell me about the human cost, how many people we think have been killed and where those people live. Again, most of the dead that we know of so far are concentrated in the al Hawz province, which is up in the Atlas Mountains. Most of the concentration of deaths is in either the foothills or up in the high Atlas, in these kind of places that, now that an earthquake's happened, feel quite fragile. I mean, they literally are perched on hillsides or shoulders. We drove past one place that looked as though it had just been carved out of the deep gorge it was in. It was just sitting on this shoulder. And these places look incredible, but they are very vulnerable to this kind of event when it happens. Ibtisam Booster, you work for the Moroccan Biodiversity and Livelihoods Association, and you're based in Marrakesh. Tell me about your experience of the earthquake that struck on Friday. So that was quite scary. I was all by myself in my flat with my cat. And because of how strong the earthquake was, it was difficult for me to open a door to escape the building. A lot of thoughts came through my mind that that was it. That was my ending. So it was very scary for me, those few moments as I was trying to escape my flat. But thankfully, the building wasn't very damaged and no one was hurt in my building or in my area. Yeah. Mm, how's your cat? She's, she's sleeping soundlessly right next to me right now. She's unbodied, really doesn't understand what's happening around her. But the following day, all I did was cry, couldn't stand straight, didn't have appetite and I haven't slept and I would sleep with my sneakers on ready to run to the door in case there's an aftershock. So it's been quite hard for everyone in Marrakesh and everyone that has been hit by this. God, I'm, I'm so sorry that the stress and anxiety of that sounds really overwhelming. But despite it, you and your organisation have been out there trying to provide relief to people. Tell me about the efforts that you've been, you've been doing. Since we have connections to these people, since we've worked with them, we have their phone numbers, we know them by names, we speak their language, so we can easily understand which areas need our aid the most. Many of these villages are not on the maps, or even if they're on the map, there's absolutely no roads, like no paved roads to get to them. So you have to drive off-road, or you have to get there with donkeys. This morning we've reached eight villages. It was quite difficult to get there if... The team had to stop for a couple of hours because the road was blocked. 
due to another aftershock that hit early this morning. God. Yeah, so there was more rubble coming down from the mountains and more rocks that would basically block the roads. So people had to stand there for hours waiting for it to get cleared so they can uh, continue to drive their supplies. Ebtisam, when your colleagues reach some of these communities, these places that may not even be on a map that can't be reached with anything other than a donkey, what are they finding on the ground there? Absolutely nothing. It's it's absolutely nothing. We're we're only finding rebels. There's nothing standing anymore. There's absolutely nothing standing. People are sleeping on these mountains, on these terrains. They they don't have covers. They don't have tents, which we've been actively trying to purchase. And there's a, a, like an immense shortage of them. We can't find them in Agadir. We can't find them in Marrakesh. We're trying to source them from abroad. So these people have lost everything, their homes, some of their families, they've lost everything and they have nothing to go back to. The whole community have just collapsed. You know these communities better than most people. When you say that they're being wiped off the map, what is Morocco losing? What is the world losing when these villages just disappear in an instant? Uh, This is such a difficult uh, question to answer. Um, I don't think the people understand or grasp how much we're losing as as a country, as a community, and we're losing so much. The Atlas communities, the people there, they have so much knowledge about traditions and um, about the language and history that they've kept in, and now suddenly everything is being wiped out. So, yeah, it's really hard to watch because... These communities are the only communities that are continuing to battle for the protection of their lands, for the protection of their environments, for the protection of their traditions. And they're deeply, deeply connected to their lands. Even after this disaster, I don't see these people wanting to leave their lands. They're they're extremely connected to them. So we're losing so much. We started seeing reports that really quite a large number of people had died in this village outside of the city of Amizmez called Tafakarat. And so we decided that we were going to head up there first. It's about an hour's drive, maybe a little further. I mean, we went through Amizmez where there's been quite a lot of reporting from in the last couple of days. And it's quite clear that the aid effort there was beginning to really step up. We were seeing tented encampments just driving past an encampment full of tents now. There's uh, water distribution going on as well. There's a lot of damage here. Amizmiz, it's a reasonably big place. I mean, it's not huge. It's quite clear there was quite a lot of damage. You would go along the street and suddenly there would be, down a side street, destroyed buildings or off one of the main roads. You'd go and there'd be cracks and parts of the face you had fallen off. And then suddenly there'd just be an entire house that had just fallen down onto the pavement. Hmm. The question that I'm asking myself is, if it's bad in these lower areas in the mountains, then what, what must it be like in the areas where we see the helicopters going to? As we were leaving Amismus, you go from paved roads to these ubiquitous dirt roads known as Piste in Morocco, which are narrow roads, gravel roads essentially going up into the mountains and you start climbing reasonably quickly. It's actually not very far. It was a fairly short drive to this village. As soon as we got there, we could just see 
the level of destruction in comparison, even with the town that we were driving from, was just incredible. We came round a bend on this steep mountain slope. It's covered in trees and still some flocks of sheep out on the hillside. And then you just see that this place, there's not really a building left standing. Mm. And there are people sort of camped by the sides of their houses in makeshift shelters, essentially made out of sticks and bedding. And just walking around, every house just gone. I mean, they're built out of clay brick and very few concrete houses. The concrete buildings tend to be mosques and schools. Those are actually relatively undamaged. And so we're walking around this village and we met this man, Abdul Karim. He was sort of standing on the ruined wall of what was his house, looking down while a couple of relatives were pulling out bedding and clothes. And we started talking to him and he said, my wife died and my daughter died and just listing the people in his family who had died and Mm. just incredible. The villagers say that 90 people in their village died of a place of about, I mean, we heard different numbers between four and 500, very, very rural, lots of them working as shepherds and things like that. Just gone, just wiped away. And Peter, did they tell you what the earthquake was like there? What it was like when it struck on Friday evening? Yes, they did. In places like this, it was so sudden. I mean, so sudden. Abdul Karim, the man who I've just described to, lost his wife and other family members, essentially said, as soon as they heard the noise, he was quick, he started moving and made it to a position where he was safe. Everyone in his family who was slower died, and another guy told us the same thing. It was just the absolute suddenness of the houses collapsing on top of them. In Wali Ibrahim, which is in a slightly different part of the mountains, it sounded as though they heard the noise, then the tremor started, then the building started falling. But here, the way people described it to us was the earthquake came and everything started collapsing on them, and it seems to have been particularly powerful in some of these locations. I mean, there was just no opportunity for them to leave. And people kept saying that you couldn't escape. If you were alive at the end of it, it was because you were lucky, not because you had any warning. I mean, it's terrifying to think that seconds can be the difference between life and death in this situation. No, absolutely. Everyone just said the same thing. And I didn't interview him, but Reuters was in the same village that A man had simply gone to the kitchen to get a knife to cut a melon for his son for a family meal. And that was the difference between life and death, going to fetch a knife to cut a melon. His eight-year-old son died while he was going to fetch a knife. You've covered wars, you've covered natural disasters. Have you seen anything that compares to the destruction that you've seen over the past few days? I don't think so. I was talking to one of the British rescue workers about this, and often in the modern world, as it were, in our times when you have an earthquake like this, even bad concrete construction, you might have some rebar or something reinforcing it. And so you see floors kind of concertina and collapse sideways so it creates these spaces made out of concrete in which there is a chance that people can survive the difference here is that the whole structure is disintegrating under the force i mean 
to try and give you a picture of it, they don't look like buildings anymore. It's like a a sandy drift has come down. Sometimes there'll be a door still in the door frame or bits of wooden supporting poles sticking out like ribs. But apart from that, everything has just disintegrated. Mm, that's shocking to imagine on the scale of village after village after village. Tell me about the people you met in the next village, Tawaris, further up the mountain. I met a band called Hassan Almaty, whose mother was killed. So we're with uh, Hassan Almaty, uh, who's going to show us around the remains of his village. Um, he walked us up the hillside. He wanted to show us what had happened to his hamlet. Top of the village here, and uh, I'm watching a couple of the men digging out one of the houses. I mean, from where we are, you can see the coastal plain just below us, and in between that and where I'm standing, every single house has been destroyed. No, so we climbed up higher and higher. We sort of ended up right at the very top of the village, and as I said, they're built on these slopes, and you could look down and see all the destruction going all the way down, and then we were in this flat spot where his family was. We're with Hassan's family now, right at the top of the village. And you can see the children have got injuries in their faces from falling rubble. Um, you can also see that there is still trauma here. I mean, Hassan is comforting one of his women family members who's been crying. We're on a bare hillside. It's just dirt and sandstone and stones looking over fields. And they are sleeping maybe a dozen of them in a shelter that's been made out of blankets and sticks that doesn't completely cover uh, where they're sleeping. I mean, they have some carpets on the ground, but it's cold up here at night, and this is how they're living and waiting for help to come. What Hassan and the other villagers said to us was, look, we haven't seen any ambulances come up here. We had six people die in our village, and we had six people injured who needed to go to hospital. And then they told us how they'd got their they're dead to the hospital and essentially they carried them down the road themselves until they reached the river and there they were met by private cars and they loaded up the bodies into a private car and they took them away. We're talking about somewhere that's 20-25 minutes from the main road outside Amismas where you're seeing fire engines and trucks with tents and army trucks and these very sophisticated international search and rescue teams. This is 25 minutes from there and everything they've done there, they've done for themselves. They've dug out their survivors and they've dug out their dead. Coming up, anger at the Moroccan government's response and why the coming days could be as dangerous as the past few. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today in Focus is supported by better help. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? 
Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Guys, Pop Culture is returning on Thursday, the 14th of September. You will also have the chance to attend the show's very first live event. I will be at the London Podcast Show on Sunday, the 17th of September. And joining me is a matchmaking expert, you know, Married at First Sight's very own Paul C. Brunson. Purchase your tickets to be in the room or on the live stream at kingsplace.co.uk forward slash pop culture. Bye. You talked about the fact that in a lot of the communities you've been visiting, aid is actually yet to arrive. People are sleeping under trees, under makeshift shelters. Are they angry? Are they wondering why the state appears to have forgotten them or wasn't ready when this earthquake struck? They feel as though they've been abandoned. I mean, people have been incredibly resilient. It's humbling to see just how resilient people have been. Most of the places I've visited, most of the rescue efforts have just been done by the people who are on the spot. Neighbours digging out neighbours, neighbours looking after neighbours. When things need to be brought because things aren't coming, people driving down the mountain in their cars and sticking four or five mattresses on the top of a car or filling up the boot with water. And other Moroccans living abroad sending money to families so that they can buy food. That's one of the things that several people said to me. It's like, we have food. Food isn't a problem. The problem is we're in the mountains and it gets cold here at night and we need help to have shelter and we need clothes and we need tents and we need to be warm. The need in these areas is clearly just so great. What is your impression, Peter, of how the Moroccan government has handled this so far? The only point of comparison that I have is covering the earthquake in Haiti, where it's a sort of largely non-functioning state and has been for a long time. That was an effort where you kind of felt as though with the best will in the world, the government really, really struggled to respond in any meaningful way. The Moroccans are trying hard. The army is deploying. There are helicopters up in the air all the time. Aid is getting out. It's partly the nature of these kind of catastrophes that while in an ideal world, we would want to see everyone being helped simultaneously as much as possible. It's the fact that this is necessarily a somewhat diffuse catastrophe that's spread across a very large area of quite inhospitable 
and difficult to reach mountains that I think would stretch most governments. I understand why people who feel left in the lurch feel so disappointed, but at the same time, I think it is fair to say that there is a big effort and hopefully it will reach these places sooner rather than later. And tell me about the international response to what's happened. Where is aid coming from? And perhaps more interestingly, where is aid not coming from? There's been some politics behind this. The Moroccan government has essentially invited rescue teams in from four countries. The government has refused to accept foreign aid from all but four countries. Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, the United Kingdom and Spain. Moroccan officials hoped the strategy would avoid a, quote, counterproductive lack of coordination. There's others on offer, including France. It's always quite complicated in these circumstances. One of the principles of humanitarian aid is humanitarian sovereignty. And the Moroccan government, in many ways rightly, in my view, feels that it should be helping its own people as much as possible. I mean, whether it made a mistake in not accepting the arrival of search and rescue teams earlier, I think is going to be an open question and the one that will come up over the coming days. I ran into the official British government search and rescue team. If they could have been here within 24 hours, might more lives have been saved? I think given the nature of the way that buildings did collapse and the kind of buildings that did collapse, I have a sense that In terms of the immediate response, it might not necessarily have saved many more lives. And it feels to me now that what is perhaps necessary, and it's necessary for the Moroccans to accept it, is that what you do need is a very big effort to deal with the problem that exists now, and that is people being warm and under shelter, tents and clothing and ways for people to cook being made available very, very quickly, because that is the coming issue. The people who survived are alive or in hospital. The people who died were buried in the rubble. But there are people out there whose lives are pretty miserable at the moment and who are vulnerable to all sorts of secondary impacts from this. Finally, Peter, you spent this day trying to get as high as you could possibly get, as close to the epicentre as possible. How far were you and your team able to get? Ahead of us, I mean, it's, it's just steep, high mountain valleys that go into the Atlas Mountains where the helicopters have been going. We're going to drive for half an hour and see how far we can get along this road. Ahmed, who's driving me, is usually a tour guide, so and he comes from this area, so he knows this region well. Ahmed, yes, please. There, there are lots of villages ahead of us, aren't there? Yes, please. We have a lot of, in Atlas Mountains, we have more than a thousand of villages, all of us who are Berbers. So please, the situation here is very, very terrible, and we feel in hope, inshallah. Thank you. Yes. We went up that road to see how far we could go and you reach a point eight, nine hundred metres above sea level, above the coastal plain, and you see there are cracks in these dirt roads. And so beyond that point, that is where the helicopters are operating and what we're not seeing. And so the question that none of us really know the answer to is how many villages like the ones we saw, how many villages are there like this? And collating what other people are saying you sense that there are quite a few other villages that have just been wiped off the face of the earth Peter Beaumont, thank you very much Thank you
That was Peter Beaumont, a Guardian journalist reporting from Morocco. You can read his coverage of this earthquake and its aftermath at theguardian.com. Elsewhere in North Africa, Libya has been hit by terrible flooding and there are 10,000 people said to be still unaccounted for. Our coverage of that disaster is also at our website. Thanks also to Ibtisam Booster from the Moroccan Biodiversity and Livelihoods Association for making time to talk to us during such a hectic few days. We appreciate it. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Courtney Youssef with Helen Pidd and Sammy Kent. Sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producer was Elizabeth Casson, and we're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.